Welcome to episode four of Psyche and Spirit with Relendra. I'm Relendra, and today I'd like to read to you uh, from another one of my articles from 2020. Uh, but before I do that, I thought I would share with you that I just got the first pressing of my vinyl version of my new album, Soul Retrieval by Relendra. There's the front and back. It's kind of cool. I don't know. Um, Final's fun. I got CDs also that have come in. So, if anybody is listening to this that hasn't heard my music and is curious about what that might sound like, you can order hard copies of it. I know most people don't listen to music that way anymore, but um, it's also available on all the streaming platforms um, as well as for direct download on Bandcamp. That's not what I'm here to talk about today. What I'd like to do is to read this article, um, Lockdown Evoked a Political and Conceptual Earthquake in My Life. And I wrote this article in, I think, September of 2020. The earthquake really happened in June. Um, and I recently read that article about part of the problem sort of that moment that occurred for me in June that in retrospect marked a very deep turning point in my life. I uh, didn't quite know that at the time. I kind of knew it. Really the, the, the house of cards around this reality we're supposed to be believing in um, came crashing down a week or two before that, but it solidified into place, I realized like, oh yeah, I really am waking up to something here. And July and August was a period of time in which I was just integrating this understanding of how corrupt our world is how corrupt our leadership is. I knew it was corrupt already. And I had gone pretty deep down the rabbit hole previously. You know, around um, the Kennedy assassination, 9-11, all that kind of stuff. I, I had learned about the Illuminati and, you know, I was like, well, I don't really know if that's real or not, but I learned about it. And I learned about the secret societies and the Council of Foreign Relations. And I learned about all that stuff, like in 2001 and 2002. But I was still blue-pilled, right? Like, even knowing that stuff, I didn't know. I just didn't know how deep it went. And 2020 taught me that. <laughs> so. Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read this article to you. Lockdown evoked a political and conceptual earthquake in my life, and all I got was this lousy mask. This is the story of how 2020 completely upended my perceptions, worldview, and politics, and my sense of what and who I trust. 
this story is relevant to those who are interested in communicating across the gaps of perception and belief. My experiences this year have cracked me open, and the result is a firmer footing on more uncertain ground. So I was truly afraid of the virus in March and April of 2020, and I was doing things like um, compulsively washing my hands, wiping down my cell phone with rubbing alcohol, um, avoiding grocery stores. Anxiety was rocketing through my body at a constant clip in those months. And despite my fear of, of the virus, but because I had so much trouble containing the anxiety, I relapsed on smoking cigarettes. I was sucking down a pack a day, all the while terrified that I was increasing my chance of death by harming my lungs but desperately in, in need of soothing relief for my nerves. And I was all on board with two weeks to flatten the curve and, and maybe a few more weeks just for good measure. Yeah, it made sense to me I, uh, when I first heard about it. It's like, oh yeah, like here's this really dangerous um, disease, right? That's, um, that's spreading virally and it's just getting started, but if everybody just stopped doing everything for a couple weeks, um, stopped interacting with strangers, then it wouldn't be able to spread. And we could stop it before it gets started. That seemed to be the reasoning. I've since learned that there's no way this has ever worked anywhere for, for this kind of a, a disease, but as afraid as I was at the time, I was for it. And, and as afraid as I was, though, it never occurred to me in my wildest nightmares that we as a society and across the globe would convert those few weeks into an ongoing permanent state of imposed isolation. My concerns began creeping up on me gradually. I had never thought flatten the curve lockdown would apply to our existing friends and family members. Never thought that that was gonna be part of it. Obviously that would be going too far, right? The whole point I thought was to avoid crowds of strangers where um, the infection could spread rapidly to many people without the ability to trace the chain of contact. Uh, but within days of the lockdowns being announced, my friends started informing me that they would no longer permit me to be in their presence. A chill, and I live alone, and I lived alone then. So a lot of people, you know, they live with people and they're like, well, these would be my people. And you know, for people who lived alone, <laughs> forget it. You're on your own. Figure it out. So within, uh, within days that happened, and then a chill set deeper into my heart as the government started closing parks, beaches, outdoor spaces. Uh, surely, I thought, these were not the places um, 
the ailment was likely to spread. And going outside to get fresh air, sunlight, exercise, contact with nature, uh, well, that's good for physical health, mental health, emotional health, and spiritual health. And getting your health up on all levels is really important if you're, you're up against some sort of infectious disease that, that could be harmful. Um, bans were then imposed on non-essential travel. We were told we couldn't even go outside except for taking walks in the neighborhood for exercise. As long as we stayed six feet away from everyone. And maybe in like trips to the grocery store. Articles in the corporate press insisted that even taking walks alone in the park was probably a shameful thing to do, at the very least, because it was setting a bad example. As I read this, I'm popping out for a second here. Do y'all remember? Do you remember this? Sometimes it seems like people have like amnesia, like as if as if this didn't happen, as if it weren't out of control and traumatic. Anyway, popping back in. After a few weeks, um, when the death toll turned out not to be nearly as high as we'd been told to fear, and the curve had been flattened, I started getting confused as to why the restrictions were not being lifted. And I was still afraid of the virus at this point, but I began to realize that as scared as I was of the virus, I was far more afraid of continuing to live in this isolated way. And I was also far more afraid of living with constant anxiety rocketing through my body than I was of even dying. Compared to that, I, I was getting to the point of welcoming death. And But I ran across good news, and it showed that the virus is actually far more prevalent than we had thought which in some ways wasn't good news because it, meant it was like already out there. There was no stopping it. Um, and that it had been with us for far longer. But this, what this meant was that the death rate was actually much lower than we had feared. And it also meant that I may have already had the virus uh, because I'd suffered through the worst flu of my life in January of 2020. Uh, and it was different. It wasn't just the worst kind of flu. This is different. It had this like different weird quality. And I remember when I had it thinking like, this is weird. This is, a, I've never experienced something quite like this. Anyway, this was probably May, you know, or something when I, when I started learning about this. And I rushed out to get an antibody test at the time, hoping I'd show immunity. And I could tell all my friends, I'm safe. It's okay to be near me again, to touch me again. I've already got the immunity. I was uh, deeply disappointed when my test came back negative. And in that moment, I realized something. Not only did I wish I already had the virus, or that I already had had it, I was starting to wish that you know, I wasn't sure if I could trust the t test or not. But if it was true that I hadn't had it, like I was starting to wish I could go get it. 
It's like, I'm going to catch this thing. Get immunity. Um, and just get this all over with. Right? And so I had made my peace to what I then believed was like a 1% to 2% chance of death. Which turns out that's not the real chance of death at all. But I'd made my peace with that. I'm like, I'm willing to roll the dice on that. I can't. I'll take a 2% chance of death to, to just get this, get my immunity, and be done with this isolation, because I cannot. This is killing me. Um, I realized that my human life with other people, with touch, hugs, kisses, faces, dating, everything good, was something worth risking my life for, something I wanted to risk my life for. What better cause was there to risk one's life for, I wondered. And I was feeling confused that very few others were coming to feel the same way I was. They told us we were all in this together. And I believed that at first. I repeated these words to others. About how we were all going to look out for each other's needs. How we'd work together to flatten the curve. We were all scared, but how great was it? that we'd get through this fear together. We'd take care of each other, etc., etc. But I soon started to realize that my needs didn't matter to the collective. I lived alone, didn't have a family, and wanted one. But being single at age 40, I was running out of time. How was I going to find love and start a family when no one's willing to meet me or touch me? Two months went by in isolation like this. I was only touched once by a friend who decided I was safe to touch because I was so utterly isolated. And when she came to my apartment and hugged me, I just broke down in tears and sobbed for half an hour until she left. She did not come back to hug me again. And I began to realize that my needs were seen by others as in direct opposition to their needs. I needed to have my life back again. I needed people, touch, community, a chance for love. The majority of others already had their families and their love or else their desire to protect themselves or loved ones from perceived risk of death was greater than their need or desire for human touch and connection. My needs had to be sacrificed so their needs could be met. And they existed in greater numbers than me. We were not in this together. And I ran across more confusing articles. From what I'd read, I'd read that uh, the antibody tests were only 20 to 25% accurate. I might have had the virus after all. I might be immune after all. What's more, the case rate was likely four to five times higher than we'd thought, which would correspondingly, if true, lower the death rate four to five times. So how could this be? I, I read more. I learned about T-cell immunity. I read about how some people who got the virus developed T-cell immunity instead of antibody immunity something that doesn't show up on those antibody tests. 
and that as many as 30 to 40% of people were likely already immune from previous coronaviruses. Um, and that would mean that the, the true death rate was lower still, perhaps as low as 0.2%. Uh, I was reading about how vast majorities of the people who did die with this disease were um, at or past the age of life of expectancy, you know? You know, something 82, 83, somewhere around there. The figures were starting to show that this virus was only slightly more life-threatening than, well, than life itself. And I started reading more. And this was all mainstream press articles at this point. All of it. I started learning about how the death count included people who had died of anything at all, as long as they had had a positive test. Sometimes even without such a test, but only if they had um, flu symptoms. And that would go down as a positive case. So how many of these people were being counted as deaths but, but did not actually die of this disease? And all of this that I was reading was good news to me. I was like, great, this is great news, people. Uh, it means we can exit these lockdowns. We can end the social distancing. We can forget about masks. We can gather in groups again. Uh, this disease had, had turned out to be just a tough case of the flu, like I had experienced in January, you know, with a little extra, a little extra from those spike proteins, perhaps. But, um, yeah, not something to completely shut down society for. But when I was reading these news articles, I would get this information out of them, but then the articles themselves would tell me that my interpretation was incorrect. And if antibody tests were inaccurate, then a false positive meant we didn't actually have the antibody and we could get the virus at any time and infect others. But if we had a false negative, it meant that there were way more of the virus out there than tests showed, and we should be more scared. If the hospital death counts were counting people who didn't actually die of the disease, we were to interpret this as making up for all the people who must be dying of the disease secretly and uncounted. If anything, the death count must be higher and not lower due to overcounting. And if you did have the disease and you did have the antibody, you should assume that your immunity would disappear and that you would get it again. Sure, we'd flattened the curve by the time June came around. That had already happened. Hospitals were half empty. Um, but now the agenda suddenly changed. We were supposed to remain socially distanced until we got saved 
by the stabby. <laughs> That's a euphemism, courtesy of Jay Dyer, you know, for the censors. But how could the stabby work if we were supposed to believe our antibodies would just go away after a few months? I guess you just keep taking the stabbies over and over again for the rest of your life. Nothing, nothing made sense. When the anti-lockdown protests began, I started thinking to myself, you know, of course nobody was around me, but I still was like, kind of like <laughs> looking over my shoulder like, I'm not even speaking this, I'm just having the thought. I'm like, I'm so glad someone's protesting this. But I kept the thoughts to myself. Because I knew the thought I was supposed to have. How selfish and irresponsible and deranged these protests were. How they were like some sort of like right wing you know, dysfunction. How they should probably be stopped. You know, constitution be damned. Because they were putting us all at risk. That's what I was supposed to think. But, but in my heart I didn't feel the way I was supposed to. Then the BLM, George Floyd protests got started. And I was shocked. Suddenly up was down and black was white, you know, pun intended. I was now expected to support these mass gatherings that the week before I'd been told were tantamount to murdering others. I mean, that's how quickly this shifted. I noticed with shock that the CDC declared these protests were not only permissible, but recommended because of the need to oppose racism as a public health measure. <laughs> the CDC was now staking out matters of public policy and political belief as falling under the rubric of public health. If we're accept that, if we're to accept that as the case, well, that means the end of democracy. It's replaced by a public health dictatorship. If they can do that, you know, whether you agree with them or not, but if they can say you have to believe something as a public health measure, and they've already established that with their public health authority, they can take your rights away, shut down society, lock you in your home, that's the end of democracy. There were other contradictions. When I was scared of the virus, I learned from the CDC and Dr. Fauci and the Surgeon General that masks didn't help. This is like March. And either they would make no difference or have slightly adverse effects. And I wasn't sure about that at the time. I, w I wasn't sure, I was like, are they, are they feeding me a line here? You know, maybe maybe these masks really would help me. I just can't get any because you couldn't get them at the time. And I wanted to be safe. So I did a little research and I found out that what they were saying checked out. It made sense. Uh, multiple controlled studies over the course of decades had shown that virus particles uh, are too small you know, to really be stopped by the masks. And, you know, of course they get in over the edges. If you can breathe, the, the air is getting in there, right? And 
I guess the studies didn't actually show that. The studies just showed that they didn't stop viruses from spreading. Um, and yeah, there'd been multiple studies over the course of decades. And, and I checked those out and I was like, okay, I, I guess they, they really don't work for that. There were other reasons why they might actually increase health risks. Um, but that use of, of masks to to try and stop the spread of cold or flu viruses um, were found to not have an effect, not any, you know, effect that you could count on, um, not positive or negative, right? It's just like a scatter plot, scatter graph. But then all that changed. Dr. Fauci announced that he and others were actually all lying to us before. Now the masks were good and they would help. You should wear them. And he explained that they'd been lying before because that particular lie was considered useful to induce behavior in line with their public policy objectives, which the excuse was to preserve the use of masks for uh, hospitals. Now the policy objectives had changed and they desired different behavior from the public. So they were telling us the opposite was true from what they said before. And I was supposed to believe that they were only lying then, but they weren't lying now. Presumably if they were lying again this time, they'd tell me about it later. If they decided that me hearing the truth from them was in line with whatever induced behavior and policy objectives they had in mind for me in the future. Well, I had already verified that their previous message about masks was accurate and made sense according to the science that was out there and was confirmed by multiple studies over the past decades. So I had done that research because I doubted what they were saying and found out that they were telling the truth before they did their switcheroo. And now all of that evidence was being thrown out the window, the evidence of decades. And this newly announced science that masks would stop the spread of the virus was so certain, so ironclad, that people all over the country and the whole world will now be forced to wear masks against their will. But even if it were true that the masks would help, why wear one if you're not sick? We were now being told that every single person in the world was to be considered a possible asymptomatic spreader of the virus. I'm just popping out again, you know, just a reminder. You remember how the progression of this, how they moved us from one place of belief to the next, to the next, to the next, and they just kept shifting us into this place where they had us in this place of perpetual lockdown, social distancing, mask wearing, um, that we never would have agreed to when those first lockdowns were announced for two weeks, for two weeks to flatten the curve. All of it begged the question, when are the authorities lying to me and when are they telling me the truth? Since the authorities have already said that they're going to lie to me when they think it's in the public interest to lie to me. Well, I've got to rely on 
on their determination of what's really in the public interest. And what if they're not honest brokers here? What if they're actually corrupt? What if they're like, wow, the kind of power that this represents to change reality in people's minds with the excuse that I'm doing it for the benefit of public health and that we've got a censorship regime that this can't be questioned? Wow. What if I decide to do it for other reasons besides public health? How are people going to know? How are they going to stop me? Right? So, it, uh, the only way for me to know what was true was not to trust what the authorities were saying, because I already knew, they had already told me that they would tell me whatever they needed or wanted to tell me for their own purposes. So I had to do my own research. And it became important to consider what are the desired beliefs and behavior that these authorities wanted to create in me and other members of the public, and why. So I started to notice how every possible bit of information released was always interpreted by these authorities and the media so as to encourage more fear, more fear of the virus, more fear of death, more surveillance, more obedience to masking and lockdowns, and longer, stricter lockdowns, more elimination of rights, more isolation from others, more censorship, more silencing of debate, more certainty that the only possible solution is um, the stabby, and that no therapeutic treatment can have any positive effect, more submission to technology replacing in-person interactions and activities. Every time information was released that countered these beliefs and behaviors, such as when the WHO announced that asymptomatic transmission is rare, they did that. I, I want to say it was in June of 2020, they made that announcement. And that invalidated any possible rationale for a universal mask mandate, for instance. Um, following that, there'd be a hue and cry in the media, followed by a retraction from the WHO or the other institution that made such a statement, and insistence that they really didn't mean it when they said it the day before. This happened a bunch of times in 2020. I also began to notice that any time other information would appear that contradicted the above list of desired behaviors and beliefs, even when it was data coming directly from the CDC or the WHO, it would get buried in the news and ignored. If it later became widely enough uh, noticed to require a response, there would be a series of fact checker or debunker articles that would use straw man arguments to obscure the data and uh, misconstrue its implications. And these would be followed by a constant stream of articles explaining the psychological pathology of those questioning the lockdown measures or the severity of the disease. Or with articles about things like the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, which is like this sort of pop psychology thing that says like, you know, lots of people like they're confident that they believe what's true uh, but they really don't believe what's true. And like, the less knowledgeable they are, the more likely they are to believe incorrectly that they're knowledgeable. So this is like the Dunning-Kruger effect. But it's really just a way to, to gaslight 
the public, <laughs> right? And say like, hey, whatever you think is true isn't true uh, because science. <laughs> so don't believe what you think. Trust us. We'll tell you what's true. It proves that the commoners should never trust their own reasoning if it leads to different conclusions than those recommended by the experts. But only the experts, the government and the media have selected and have told us we're allowed to listen to. The other experts, the ones that disagree with those ones, um, they must be silenced, censored, denounced, and ignored. So, all of that, and not to mention, the whole thing began with a lie. The whole thing began with a lie. When the virus started spreading in Wuhan, the Chinese authorities lied to everybody about it and kept it secret for two months. October, November, December. Then they finally admitted it existed in January. And we were told to believe that it had jumped from a wild bat into a wild penguin. And that then it had jumped from the penguin to humans at a meat market. A meat market that just happened to be located within a mile or two of one of the few research facilities in the world that was doing gain-of-function research on coronaviruses found in bats. <laughs> and so it has gone. I reached a breaking point with all of it in June. I was trying to understand why flatten the curve had mutated into lockdown until the stabby. So I started looking into stabbies <laughs> and those who benefit from their widespread use, trying to figure out like, yeah, why, why has this become the narrative being pushed on us? As part of that research, I encountered an interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. about stabby safety. I'd listened to RFK Jr. years ago when he had a radio show on Air America, and I respected him greatly. Um, I had never looked into this question about the stabbies before. I figured they must all be basically safe, since the entire medical establishment agrees they are. But I was also agnostic on the issue. I, I would get my recommended doses, and I always had, and I really didn't think much about it, but I never understood why there was so much hostility against those who refuse the stabbies. Why worry if some people don't want to take them? The rest of us can take the stabbies and be safe, and those who don't want them will only put themselves at risk. There might be a question about kids being at risk. Uh, but their parents would need to decide whether their children are at greater risk from exposure, exposure to a particular stabby or whether they're at greater risk by not, not receiving the stabby. And of course, course we've got to let parents look out for the safety, the safety of their, their own children. children. This is just a fundamental relationship uh, to humanity. Well, RFK opened my mind incredible risks of various studies and massive conflicts of interest in the pharmaceutical industry 
the government, government and, and the media regarding this issue, and to the silencing of debate. And this was all just in one interview that I heard, and he just laid it out, and oh, man, I realized in horror that I had just accidentally become one of those people that everyone hates and is terrified of. The dreaded, stabby skeptic. But I couldn't just pretend to ignore the sound logic and evidence I was being presented with. I realized I had just trusted the fact checkers and debunkers in the past to have done the research for me, and I believed they had proven that safety concerns about the stabbies were groundless. But they never actually showed their work. They never actually addressed the merits of the claims. They only created strawman misrepresentations of the claims and then tore those strawmen to pieces. And I determined that the claims have merit, as I had just learned to my dismay. I didn't want to be someone everyone else hated and feared. It was already bad enough that nobody would touch me or be near me. Now, if I were to be honest with them about what I had learned regarding the possibility that certain stabbies were laden with neurotoxins and other materials detrimental to the immune system, they would shun me from society altogether. Well, I'd always been skeptical of the corporate press and the government, or I thought I was, but the imposition of an authoritarian lockdown I, I could have never imagined justified by a narrative riddled with more holes than Swiss cheese. This had completely shattered my trust. Tying this to what I was learning about the stabbies, especially since the entire justification for the lockdown was based on stabbies as a magic bullet that would come and save us. Well, that had also shattered what was left of my trust in prevailing medical science. And with the two things put together, I became aware that a lockdown justified by medical necessity, backed up by fraudulent medical science, was a recipe for totalitarianism. And not only this, my politics were turning inside out as well. For the past 20 years, I'd firmly considered myself to be a left winger. In fact, I'd identified myself as a member of the far left, right? always dissatisfied with what I saw as the center-right Democratic Party and a right-wing corporate press, contrary to the moanings of the conservatives about the supposed, li supposed liberal media. I thought being left-wing meant commitment to personal human rights, civil liberties, democracy, the questioning of authority, and opposition to entrenched power attempting to subdue the common people. And yet, now I'd felt I'd gone through the looking glass. The entire left was marching in lockstep with the desire for ever more extreme and draconian lockdown restrictions. And it was only the right wing that was resisting or questioning. And even with BLM, which I'd been supporting for years, that suddenly seemed different. 
At the very moment, the whole country seemed to be more in favor of the movement than ever. I was finding myself disturbed to encounter the newly recommended antidote to racism offered by the left. And this was to insist on seeing each other and ourselves through the immutable lens of racial categories all the time, treating people assigned to different racial categories differently from each other, <laughs> to prohibit and compel certain kinds of speech, beliefs, and behavior based on racial categories under the penalty of cancellation and excommunication if one did not apply, or excuse me, one did not comply. And I suddenly saw what the right wing had been afraid of and complaining about for years regarding the dangers of socialism, how it can lead to a totalitarian society in which speech, belief, and conscience are no longer sacred rights of the individual. And I had always thought such uh, concerns were nothing uh, but bad faith, right wing propaganda before. But I'd only been thinking about socialism in terms of economic justice and redistribution. And I'd thought that Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, I thought these were anomalies that didn't have anything to do with what the left was really about. But now it seemed that the new zeitgeist of the left was that a person's very ideas and beliefs are to be considered a kind of violence or harm against others. And therefore ideas and beliefs should be, must be subject to control. And this goes along with the latest wrinkle. Every single person is now to be considered in their very body, being, touch, and breath, a threat to the health and safety of all other people. Therefore, every single person's body, being, touch, and breath will also be subject to control by the state. The same logic for totalitarian control over all people's bodies applies just as well to any infectious disease as it does to COVID. Therefore, if one accepts this logic regarding COVID, one accepts this logic permanently. Furthermore, since people's beliefs and speech can, if listened to, result in people deciding to touch or share breath with each other, beliefs and speech must be made subject to the very same totalitarian control as the body itself. So my whole world and my whole sense of the world and my place in it was turning upside down. And I was terrified to tell anyone what was going on for me. Every friend I had, everyone in my life was left-wing, or at least left-leaning. I saw what was happening to people. It could happen to me. People I thought were my friends would cancel me and pull away. They'd already stopped touching me or allowing me to be near them. Now they'd stop talking to me and stop loving me. And so I got in touch with my old counselor who I'd worked with off and on for five years, uh, but hadn't seen in a year and a half. And we started up sessions again. And as I shared in my previous article and the previous episode of this podcast, 
On our first session, I told her what was going on for me, how I needed to talk to her, because it wasn't safe to talk to anyone else in my social life without fear of being canceled. I told her what was coming up for me around the COVID, the stabbies, and BLM. My fears of society moving in this new totalitarian direction. And the next day, she sent me an email informing me she'd refunded my money and could no longer work with me because of what I shared and that she hoped I would find another counselor who could support me. Which I eventually did, but it took almost a year. <laughs> and just like that, my counselor of five years canceled me. And, and this was a devastating emotional blow. There I was. Having seen the destructive lies of the right wing through the eyes of the left for the past two decades, but suddenly now seeing the left in the same light through the eyes of the right. All at once, it became glaringly clear in my awareness how the left cultural media bubble sees reality through their own unquestioning lens that distorts facts and truth and requires that one reach the correct conclusions just as much as the right-wing cultural media bubble does. And I could see how the vision for society the left arrived at in 2020 is a recipe for totalitarianism. There's never been a political issue in my lifetime more important to me than the dangers and implications these lockdowns and dictates pose to democracy and the free dignity of human beings. After 20 years in which I was clamoring with anxiety and desperation in my heart for society and politics to move further left in every way possible, an ideological earthquake occurred in my soul that left me fearing the left more than I ever feared the right. which was quite a bit. I was very scared of the right. I cried all night long <laughs> the night Trump was elected. I was in a trauma shock for weeks afterwards, barely even able to sleep. I Because I thought there was a good chance democracy wouldn't survive Trump and that we needed to do everything we could to hobble him and his designs. In 2020, I became more concerned than ever about democracy not surviving. Trump, <laughs> but, but in an absolutely surreal way. I became concerned that Trump's weakness, poor leadership, and narcissistic venality would render him unfit to lead an effective resistance against the totalitarian politics of 2020 that captured the Democratic Party and were sweeping the nation and the world. And so <laughs> it's uh, through the looking glass is what this is. And I understand the left's point of view quite well. I was still firmly entrenched in it as recently as March 2020. But I now understand the right's point of view as well. A point of view that had baffled me for 20 years. And I see how both points of view make sense when one places their trust in certain authorities, 
different authorities for each point of view. And that because of this trust, certain facts and certain ways of reasoning just fizzle into nothing and are forgotten because they don't fit the narrative. And I now see how both narratives are set against each other in a Hegelian dialectic that obscures the designs of the true power that hides behind the throne. So that year, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't vote for Trump. I couldn't vote for Biden. And none of the leading third party candidates came out against the lockdown and masking regimes either. And so I ended up deciding to write my own name in for president in 2020. I realized that voting's not gonna be the thing that makes the difference in this world. And, and I had never seen that before, but I see it now. The power behind the throne is not dislodged by the outcomes of elections. My perceptions slowly changed during this lockdown from believing we were all doing something good for each other, together, to realizing we had just been subject to the greatest authoritarian power grab in the history of humankind. And I realized something else. The power of authoritarianism only exists in the power we give to it. Democracy or no democracy, authoritarianism can only exist because enough people collectively go along with it. The struggle exists within one's own mind and consciousness. There are coordinated forces who have weaponized ideas and colonized our minds, our beliefs, and our dreams. They describe a reality for us, and then they turn us against ourselves and against our neighbors. They convince us we can't trust ourselves, that it's our duty to turn against our own hearts, our own needs, our own humanity. And we're conditioned to go along with the version of reality that has been scripted for us. But do we really know that it's true? What if the truth is that we're all immortal beings of light and love. That we've forgotten who we are. And we've ventured into this world of boundary violations, deceptions, and trust wounds. That we've come here to heal the trauma. To awaken the beauty all around us. To awaken to the reality that we truly are safe and always will be. And that even the psychopath billionaires pulling all these strings to deceive us and harm us, that they also are in truth beautiful light beings of love who have just forgotten for a little while. Just like all of us have forgotten for a little while. And we've forgotten so much. We've believed ourselves into remembering a frightening, sad fantasy about who we are and what the world really is. A remembering that's actually an imagining of shadows and fear that obscures the true remembering of the light and the love that is never gone, that is always present. What if that's the truth we realize after, finish, after we finish sifting through all these lies and these deceptions 
these murky mazes and hallways of doubt. Well, in July of that year, I saw a UFO. And I'd never seen one before. And I had no idea what it was. It appeared to be a star at night that rose from the horizon due west and lifted itself well into the sky in an arc that traversed over 90 degrees before descending back down to the horizon line, slightly east of due north, taking about five to 10 minutes to move in this way. It seemed to wobble slightly along its journey, though it could have been a trick of the eyes. But I searched my mind for explanations the trajectory was all wrong for any airplane I'd ever seen or imagined. Uh, couldn't be a satellite, a comet, or a meteor? Some kind of projectile fired into the air? Nothing made sense. And so that's, that's all it is. It's just, it was a flying object that, that I was unable to identify. But what else could it be? You know, an alien craft? Secret human military technology? An angel? A light being or light guardian? Maybe it was one of those possibilities I discounted and I just don't understand trajectory and how things move. I don't know what it was. It was an unidentified flying object to me. But perhaps it was an omen sent for those of us who were waiting, waiting to see it. A reminder that we don't really know what's true. A reminder that despair is nonsensical. When we're at peace and when we're still, doesn't our heart speak truly? Doesn't it remind us that we are safe and whole and that we've always been so? That the vastness of existence and being is so far beyond what we think we can know with any science that the thought of it is laughable. And it's a laughter not of mockery, but, but of joy and delight. And so when we're trying to understand how to tolerate the beliefs and viewpoints of others, whether left or right, centrist or populist, whether technocratic credulity or Gaian mysticism, whether conspiracist or normie, well, I think it's not that hard. Or it doesn't have to be. Just remember that you're a divine being of light who's forgotten. And you're speaking to a divine being of light who is forgotten. And that sometimes we talk to each other to remember what we've forgotten. And sometimes we talk to each other to protect ourselves from remembering. And that an infinite sea of beliefs and certainties are possible, depending on which direction one wants to look. Well, there's something in me that says, watch out. We've all got to believe the right thing or we're all screwed. It's almost too late. Convince the others. Hurry. <laughs> and uh, there's something else in me that says, I'm already home. 
I'm already at peace. And those things I thought I needed to do, to be, to have, that safety I thought I had to fight for or to cling to, well, all of that is already within me and within you. And we're, we are already healed. Nothing can ever be done to harm who we truly are. And I want to spend my time here on this material world embracing the enjoyment of a human life with touching, with dignity, with closeness, with trust, with song and dance, and freedom and sovereign respect for every being to be who they are, to create and announce who they are, None ever subject to definition by the other. None ever told what is true for them by the other. And I hold the beauty of that vision like a lamp for any others to whom it calls. And I'm not gonna try to convince anyone to live in love and release the fear. Only one's own heart can provide that kind of persuasion. And it's just a matter of relaxing into trust. I want to thank you for listening. And uh, I'm just going to leave it there. I'll be back later. I'm Relendra, signing out. See you next time.